Today's podcast is brought to you by our podcast partner, Catholic Care Social Services in Toowoomba, Queensland. Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. My special guest today is Kate Venerables, Executive Director of Catholic Care in Toowoomba, Queensland. And our topic is the future of church and charitable organisations providing social services to rural, regional and remote communities. Kate has spent the last 20 years working in the social services sector across central Queensland, the Darling Downs and southwest Queensland. Working with teams who provide services to families and individuals needing support, refugees and migrants, our First Nations people and separated parents. Kate is aware of the many vulnerabilities and complexities of our varied communities across southwest Queensland, as well as the enormous resilience they are able to develop. Kate also is President of the Toowoomba Chamber of Commerce, a member of the Regional Development Australia Board for Southwest Queensland, a member of the Toowoomba Catholic Schools Council and Executive Member of the St Bart's Anglican Parish Council. Now, let's introduce Kate. Welcome, Kate. Um, Lovely to be here. Now, Kate, we, um, we've got an important topic to talk about today and, and lots of very relevant topical issues around social services, the future of supporting, you know, very vulnerable members of your community in Toowoomba and southwest Queensland. So let's start by maybe clarifying for our listeners who, who maybe not be as um, experienced as you in terms of the social services space. Just give us an overview, you know, what is social services and, and what is that sector, if that's all right with you? You know, I actually Googled it. I was like, what is the social services <laughs> sector? Um, and according to Google, it said, you know, that it's, it's a space or an individual organisation that works with struggling people through an organised agency, you know, that they deliver yeah, a, yeah, a ra- okay. wide range of services um, with the goals of bettering the lives of individuals, groups and communities. And I, I think that's okay, though there is a bit of a patronising element to it. Yeah. Do you know, I, I think at the end of the day, the social services really are about uh, working and supporting people when they are struggling and it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are struggle can occur in life Um, some people are able to access uh, support services because they've got um, you know the financial background to be able to pay for their own and others don't and so I think the social services really in some ways fills a gap that traditionally village and community life would have done Thank you. And I recall one of our guests previously, um, Karen Walsh, works here in Microprojects. She, she made this incredible statement. She said that, you know, no matter who you are, you're only three major personal catastrophes away from being homeless. Yeah, she said, you think about, you know, marriage, break up, lost your job, and, and all of a sudden you can be find yourself without a home. So it, it can affect anyone, anytime, anywhere, doesn't it, in terms of supporting them socially. The other clarification I'd like to do at, at the beginning of our conversation is um, I, I refer to church and charitable organisations. Now, from your perspective, who does that encompass in, in Australia? Well, certainly according to the ACNC, um, a charity is pretty broadly defined yeah. uh, and and can be, um, you know, as, as small as three people, you know, right up to uh, millions. And so I think it's incredibly broad. I think 
you know, historically charity has had um, a sort of a doing for emphasis, which I'm not actually sure is that helpful. Mm. I think in this day and age, a whole lot of uh, charities are, are often about fundraising ventures with a good cause. Yeah. And, and there is not necessarily some sort of, you know, terribly, you know, a poor person at the other end that's going to be given something. But in fact, it's often about awareness raising. It's about fundraising. It's about ongoing commitment, you know, by a society to a particular issue. And I, and I think that the, you know, the church has particular ways of doing some of those things. Yeah. Um, obviously, historically, you know, for, for hundreds of years, the churches uh, were the ones that gave to people who were not able to help themselves. Um, and, you know, I guess they did that both in ways that were very benevolent and probably, mm-hmm. truthfully, in ways that were pretty disempowering as well. Mm. Um, so I certainly don't think it's all about having, you know, archangels in our history, but that there were people who've had a social justice emphasis. Mm. Um, in the church, it comes out of a gospel perspective. I think in broader society, it comes out of a, a more sort of humanitarian understanding of, of believing everyone has the right to the basics. Agreed, agreed. And that's the sort of community that we're looking for in Australia. So, well, look, let's, let's talk about you further now. It's over 20 years, your involvement in the social services sector. So I'm, I'm always interested in asking our guests, you know, what attracted you to this, this space and also what keeps you in this space? So, Patrick, now you've blown my cover and I'm not 32. Um, <laughs> clearly, uh, I am in my early 50s. Um, and, uh, and honestly, what got me there was actually um, that I happened to be giving a talk. In, I was in Rockhampton. I was giving a talk to a, a large group of, of women. I'd sort of been invited to come and talk about some experiences I'd had having lived in Papua New Guinea. And somebody came up to me after and said, oh, are you interested in doing, um, you know, sort of teaching a bit of, you know, religious uh, um, relationship education? work I was like I don't know anything about relationship don't talk to my husband because he probably won't give me a good rap um, and she said no no I'm serious and so I went along for a bit of an interview um, I had you know I was working a couple of days a week I was doing what they called relationship education which oh, yeah. was you yeah, know yeah. in the Catholic Church it was all about before you got married you had to do you know this pre-marriage yeah, education yeah, yeah. I, there was a little I've bit of <laughs> and you're still married so good work <laughs> me too um, and there was a little bit of work that we were doing in prison as well so there was a little bit of relationship education started out a couple of days and honestly it's just grown from there so I have just had opportunity after opportunity given to me doors have opened and people have been there to kind of encourage me and support me and challenge me quite frankly when perhaps I might have been reluctant uh, and or possibly too big-headed you know so there's something quite you know leveling about my ego in that journey. Well um, I want to come to what keeps you in a moment but just to point you raise um you know we, we talked about this before we started that a lot of our guests I often ask about their their career progression and it seems you know quite linear and I think well that's impressive from there to there to there but they often say it's nothing like that and it seems a bit to you that it was not I know it's planned as such was it definitely not in fact you know my kind of reflection when I when I talk about leadership and I guess I get invited to do that yeah. more and more which is um a a great privilege and delight and, and honour. But, you know, I, I regularly say kind of my relate, you know, my kind of understanding of leadership is uh, there's a whole lot of composting that goes on, <laughs> that nothing is ever lost. Uh, poop eventually can grow roses. Um, and, 
and that if you are lucky enough to you know continue to kind of be invited in, on a journey that you can you can continue to take lessons learned with you so I can take lessons learned from being a governess in Cloncurry from working up in Papua New Guinea you know from being in Lismore having small children having no clue about what was going on but learning about vegetarianism you know and the world goes on I just think that you know it's life is eclectic Oh, fantastic. So the last part of that question was what keeps you in this space now? It's been from that early start, part-time now, to, to leading an organisation that's growing and evolving, and we'll talk about that in a moment, in terms of the, the geographical space that you cover is immense. What keeps you in that space? Look, I guess there's a couple of things. For me, it's certainly a passion to see our region flourish. And in a social services organisation, we are about enabling folk um, who, who are struggling to be able to continue to flourish and grow. So I think there is that opportunity. I think uh, what keeps me there is I have fantastic staff who make transformative difference every day in the lives of people. So if I can be part of that and enable them to do that, then what a great blessing that is. And honestly, sometimes I think it's because you have a sense that even when it gets tough, you're in the right space, you know. Now, and some people might call that God, some people might call that just a sense of knowing you're using your gifts well, but the opportunity to make a difference is such a gift. We work alongside a whole range of impressive leaders and and, and you're no exception. So tell us a bit about your, your, your style, your approach to leadership. You mentioned you've got great people around you and that's, that's you know, almost inspiring. I sort of got the sense. But what's your approach to that? Uh, and I heard the word empower as well in your previous, your, your previous answer. So just give us a bit of an overview of your approach to leadership. So for me, I, I tend to think of leadership as uh, three Ps. I think it's uh, first and foremost about people. I think it's about perspective so that you can keep things in balance Um, and I think it's about perseverance so that you need to have that vision that you will drive for, that you kind of want to engage people along the way and that by having perspective, hopefully you don't, you know, you don't let the little things get in the way but that you keep that big kind of goal that you're getting to to try and get there. Yeah, uh, the three Ps. That's a that's a nice an analogy and nice simple way to remind yourself, isn't it, as a leader? And you're right. Successful leaders are, are always focused on that longer term, aren't they? They're really not distracted by, and they're quite disciplined around that longer term. So I'm really pleased to hear that because you can very easily get sucked into the day to day business of what you have to do and the busyness of that. Yeah. So you have to be able to segregate yourself from that regularly to keep that vision alive. Absolutely. And I think at the moment, you know, Patrick, as we look around at leadership um, on the world stage and then sort of nationally and, and, you know, kind of as you get closer to home, I I think the other thing that is really significant for leaders is to be challenged to maintain integrity. And for me, you know, there, there is that fairly common image, but one I really like, which is that, you know, I think when, when leaders, when good leaders are reflecting on what is going on, that they are looking outside the window to celebrate and look at the team when there is great mm. success and they're looking in the mirror when there are challenges. Because <laughs> as a leader, you hold responsibility ultimately for that. Now, sometimes I don't like that and I, and I you know, have to remind myself of that and talk sternly to myself that it is actually my fault, that I am responsible responsible in the greater scheme of things but I think that that ability to be able to take responsibility and be really clear where your integrity lines are is very important. Now you lead a church and charitable as we mentioned at the Mm. beginning and your inverted commas boss is the bishop of the the diocese of of Toowoomba 
And now, so that's not a sort of a regular um, employee-employer uh, uh, structure, is it, in, in that space? So I'm interested for our listeners to hear, you know, what's that like in terms of that, that structure? I mean, he has significant responsibility for the, the church and all its services, no doubt. Um, includes education, um, you know, the, the parishes of many across the, the great spread of, of the organisation and obviously the, the social services services of, of the parishes as well. So what's that like from your perspective and also how is it different from maybe other areas, other structures you may have worked in, in the past? I think, uh, I mean, I just think that it's not a common legal structure for a start, which means yeah. that in some ways levels of responsibility and, and who answers to whom is is blurry. Um, although it's very clear, I answer directly to the bishop, we have an advisory council who also have significant say in, in decisions that are made, and, true, and rightly so. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We have a really um, strong skills-based council, and that is that is a great blessing. But but it does kind of mean often that they might, whilst they may not be in contradiction, they're not always on, on the same page either. Um, and they have very different agendas. The council are very clearly about, um, they are wedded to Catholic Care's mission, uh, where I think that the bishop is probably, um, well, I'd like to suggest at best wedded to God's mission, but, you know, certainly, you know, there's, there's a diocesan vision. And, and, and I mean, we, to a degree, sit to the side in that space. Unlike education, we're really clear that we're not about evangelisation. You know, in fact, we, in fact, we are overtly clear that we have nothing to do with making little Catholics because we get funding from government to support everyone. In the best way Catholics is known as universal, right. that is what we are. And so we do sit slightly differently. I suspect we're probably a bit of a challenge in some ways for the bishop because we, we don't sort of fall within his normal structure of, um, you know, he says jump and we say how high. Mm. Um, uh, but but I have to say, in, in, in kind of greater terms, what that looks like is um, sort of, you know, quarterly catch-ups. Um, obviously, he gets all the, the um, regular board reports that we write. Uh, he is in contact with the chair on a semi-regular basis. And so he kind of gets information. I think probably the reality in that space is um, as long as we're continuing to do great work and he doesn't mm. have any negative feedback, he's pretty happy with the way we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, you're right. It is a very unique structure, isn't it, mm. because of the nature of church environments and Absolutely. and the canonical structure that that overlays the legal structure as well. So there's, there's those challenges for leaders. Mm. And just sort of a, a final question in that space – um, women leading in the church is, is a uh, sometimes can be a thorny issue and mm. can be a challenge, as, as you can imagine. And so, I, I'm delighted to see uh, an opportunity uh, for many, many women that I work with in our space working in church and charitables. And so, I can see a real revolution over the last 10 years, if not longer, of women taking very senior roles in those spaces. And so, I, I laud that. Mm. But I want to know about your journey in this space as well. And, and I suppose. Secondly to that, that I know that you straddle not just the Catholic Church but also other church denominations in your family life as well. So I think you, you know, you're well placed to give a view on what that might look like. Well, Patrick, I, um, I often joke that I have 
two bishops in my life, which is one bishop too many for any girl. <laughs> uh, because I am married to an Anglican bishop and I have a Catholic bishop as a boss. And, um, <laughs> that's and pretty I, unique. It is, it is pretty unique. Uh, and look, I mean, honestly, to be honest with you, they are actually quite good friends. So that's great and that, that uh, makes my life easier. Sure. Um, I, and I think that uh, I think that the church is in the Anglican Church and indeed in the Catholic Church. There are still ongoing conversations about how they work with women in leadership. I think the Anglican Church, in some areas of Australia, is much more uh, advanced in those discussions, yep. Yep. and in other in other dioceses and other areas, uh, those discussions are still being had, and women have not as uh, significant leading roles. In the Catholic Church, that they have nothing. If we're talking about clergy, so who yeah. are priests and, and bishops and, and deacons, we, we don't have women in that space. I think that is uh, because I am an Anglican as opposed to a Catholic. For me, I, I look into the Catholic Church from the outside and I see that as a significant deficit. Yeah. And, and, you know, I can, I can justify, um, you know, from a kind of a church perspective why I believe women in leadership uh, is a great blessing and, quite frankly, is actually what it's meant to be. And I think that by the Catholic Church not having women uh, in clergy and, and really in many ways what that means is in the, in the kind of the highest um, control, really, you've only got men. Mm. And you've not only just got men, and, and um, as I'm sitting with two beautiful men, I certainly wouldn't <laughs> suggest for a second that men don't have extraordinary gifts and that, you know, obviously we work best when we're working together. The bottom line is these dudes have no idea about women at all because they're not married. Yep. Um, and most of them actually have the world's most extraordinary egos because no one even takes them down a peg. Now, not that spouses are necessarily about peg taking down, but, you know, it does help you manage your ego when you have a partner <laughs> who will have some frank and fearless conversation with you. So I think you have a really distorted filter that is about decision making in the catholic church yes and i think that the flow on impact because of so many other social things that are occurring is that you end up with a very risk averse and very protected space where decisions are not made with the best uh, intent in mind for all of society but it's about protectionism mm. let's take a short break now to hear from our podcast partner Catholic Care Social Services in Toowoomba, Queensland. Catholic Care has been working across the Darling Downs and Western Queensland region since 1983, with 60 staff and over 100 volunteers. They're best known for their extensive work they do to support families and local businesses through their counselling and mediation services, as well as the work they do with First Nations people and refugees and migrant communities. Each year, more than 1,000 families are supported through the pressure points of life across their services throughout a region that's almost 500,000 square kilometres. Let's talk now about your, your organisation. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's 500,000 square kilometres and supporting really vulnerable people. Tell us about the sort of services that you deliver and the impacts you're having. You mentioned your your team and the, the daily impacts they're having with the people you're supporting. So we, uh, as you say, have a large geographical space. I say we go from Toowoomba to the South Australian border and we go from Taroom in the north down to Gundy in the south. So wow. that covers that massive footprint. Um, towns that people would probably have heard of include uh, Roma and Charleville, Quilpie, St George, Eramanga, Kanamala, 
Gundawindi, Warwick, Dolby, um, yeah. and, a, and a billion others scattered around. Um, each of those towns will have their own local atmosphere and their own local needs. And, and there's certainly no question that we would love to be a massively funded organisation to be able to help all of them. Um, but we have only just over $6.5 million, and so we have to be pretty careful and frugal mm. with the way we use mm. our resources. We've got, a, we've got a graphic that we call the four quadrants, which is basically just a circle divided up into four bits. And, and we talk about four main groups uh, of people that we work with. They're not mutually exclusive, but they are sort of help us focus the way we, we provide services. So the first group is um, what we call family individuals. And in, in that space, we work in, in with mediation in terms of separated yep. couples through yep. a program called the Family Relationship Centre. We have family and individual counselling. So we work either to help families stay together or, or break up well we work with individuals who do work with children the next group that we work with is the first nations people so we have a number of different first nations programs and we we do quite a lot of work in the youth justice space um and and then as well as adult justice we have murray court that we hold at catholic care and um and we have lots of work that we do in terms of elders and connectivity and support and it is a tremendous privilege that we get to work in that space And I think, uh, I mean, that is obviously down to our staff. We yeah. have extraordinary staff. Obviously, we have staff who identify and they are really passionate about the ongoing thriving of their communities and, and I only want to get behind them and back them 100%. Fantastic. So it's, so it's some fantastic work that we see there. We work with refugees and migrants. Toowoomba is a large uh, settlement uh, area, which means that the, the federal government has formally recognised it as an area for refugees to settle. And in fact, we have the largest group of Yazidi people. Now, Yazidi are the latest cohort that arrived just before COVID, really. They came out of northern Iraq and they were um, intentionally targeted by ISIS. Um, they oh, are a religious right. group, in fact, and they uh, there's about 10,000 of them in Australia and just over 5,000 live in Toowoomba. Wow. Uh, they are a group that come with uh, some extraordinary gifts and some absolutely amazing culture, but they came with an, a number of challenges, and that's because they came directly from the conflict. Not dissimilar in some ways to those Ukrainians that we're starting Correct. to see and yes. we're hearing about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I guess the difference is that in some ways they, they come from a history of genocide. Seven, uh, 70 generations have been persecuted over the years. So they have just forever lived in a space where they were being persecuted as a people group. And so, uh, you know, one of the impacts of that is that they didn't have a written language because their books were burned so regularly in <laughs> genocide opportunities and moments that they actually don't have a written language. So they came with this extraordinary trauma, generational trauma. They came with specific trauma. They came. Um, and when they arrived in Australia, and in particular a number of them came to Toowoomba fairly quickly, we were still getting visions at that stage of horrific things happening back in their homeland. And so um, ISIS had particularly targeted the women and they were doing horrendous mutilations and rape of women and they had mass graves that they were finding. And so the, the trauma was extraordinary. And rather than going to a refugee camp, which is a much more common refugee mm. journey story, they came straight from that horrific trauma into Toowoomba. <laughs> wow. They came with a new language. It's called Kurdish Kumanji. 
when they arrived, there was not a single NATI trainer. So NATI is the national um, body which looks after interpreting and translation. Yep. There was not a single person who could speak Kurdish Kumanji. Um, there is now about a dozen of them in Australia, and we have about six of them in Toowoomba. Um, wow. And Catholic Care actually employs four of those. So it's been an extraordinary journey of learning what it's like to have that refugee cohort. Um, and so that so they so the refugees form a significant part sure, of the work sure. that we do through a program we call TRAMS, the Toowoomba Refugee yes. and Migrant Service. And the last group that we work with, and actually, Patrick, this is a growing group and one that um, I am more and more enjoying and engaging with is actually local businesses. I think traditionally social services have been, you know, kind of associated with folk who are really struggling and, and certainly we, we do lots of work with vulnerable people. But actually communities flourish and do really well when small businesses and the business community is doing really well because right. everyone is raised up. So you're, you're the chair of the Chamber of Commerce. I am. In fact, can I just say, there is this kind of dicky word they use. They say the president. I have done my best to try and get it labelled chair, <laughs> but at the moment it's still president. <laughs> and that has been an extraordinary gift uh, and, and opportunity then to sort of work with local businesses. But the reality is local businesses are made up of people who are vulnerable and people who are not vulnerable. And yeah. so when we are supporting local businesses, um, we are obviously, uh, we have a fee-for-service stream that we're really intentionally thri- you know, grow- growing um, and we are supporting local businesses in that space. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, with this very broad geographical space and you mentioned you know this a whole range of regional towns outside of Tuma being the largest in that space what are some of the, the the challenges apart from the obvious one of the tyranny of distance what are some of the challenges you're you're facing and in particular how how are you working towards overcoming them i got a bit of a sense of that in your your last response but just give us a bit of a summary of some of these challenges firstly I think that probably in southwest Queensland, the most significant challenge is population uh, migration away from the towns. Yes. Um, as, as people have less opportunity or perceived less opportunity, people are leaving and moving to the larger regional towns like Toowoomba and or metropolitan areas. Yes. And so uh, when people leave towns, obviously uh, resources leave with them. Yes. And so, you know, you get, uh, you have less schools, you have less health support, um, you certainly have less um, of any other kind of more uh, specific service, specialty service. People yes. have to drive further, uh, go longer, you know, distances to be able to access things that in metropolitan you wouldn't even consider you know you just wouldn't I mean people just wouldn't do it um, let alone actually understand the impact of what that is so so I think that the the tyranny of distance is is felt particularly as those towns shrink uh, and services go away part of the way organizations have attempted to try and resolve that is a is a kind of a fly-in fly-out thing Mm -hmm. and I think um what that has produced for for many uh, local communities, and I think it's really understandable, is can I say some resistance or at least some wariness about who is it going to be this week? You know, yeah. uh, you know that there is no sense of long term commitment to the community. That it's in and out. That they don't really understand. They have no kind of investment really generally in that community, um, and that they are not really engaged. And so I guess at Catholic Care we have tried to be really intentional about 
how and when we invest in community. Mm. So we have both people on the ground in towns as well as do lots of support in from Toowoomba. One of the things that I commit to is I get out um, in the southwest every month. Um, generally speaking, I certainly get as far as St George and Roma, which is a four-hour drive from Toowoomba, so it's a, a nice steady run, um, and I am engaging local communities. So I have amazing staff. Obviously, I spend time with them, but actually I really intentionally work with local councils out there. Mm -hmm. I talk to small businesses. I talk to chambers out there. Um, we'll go and talk to health and education to see what's going on. Um, and I guess I'm continually trying to work out where are the gaps and then how can we best fill them. And if we can't fill them... Who um, else can? Exactly. Mm. And, and I guess, uh, you know, the, the beauty of, of regional living, of regional work, is that you often have great opportunities to connect right across different sectors. And so if I don't know, um, if we can't do it, I often have the opportunity to possibly, hopefully, share a connection or a partnership with mm. them for somebody mm. else. Mm. Now, we're, we're recording this conversation um, pretty much in the middle of an uh, election campaign. That's right. Just um, over three weeks, right? So I'd be interested in getting your your views, and and I'll couch it this way: you know, what would be your advice to whoever forms government after this next election about supporting rural, regional, and remote communities, uh, particularly you know the, the vulnerable members of community that you know we've mentioned uh, in in your your previous answers, and 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 to you know what would a more equitable Australia look like, and should should look like from your Look, I have to say I've been doing a fair bit of um, calling out in terms of asking oh, um, okay. our candidates to consider policies in regards – I mean, housing is an enormous yeah. issue. Uh, in fact, I've always started referring to, to as the H word because, you know, it's, uh, you know, traumatising everyone so much. <laughs> um, I think that the reality of how they can invest more effectively in innovative services – we understand you can't have a one-for-one -one relationship necessarily with all the supports that you need, but it it is not right that people who live in Quilpie are expected to have less um, health support, less education support. Governments really need to make decisions about that because, quite frankly, they made decisions to put the people out there in the first place. You know, they need to do a whole lot more mirror-looking as opposed to backslapping about, you know, what it is that they do. Because whilst we know that the majority of the population, of course, live in the coastal regions, the reality is um, our food bowls don't live on the coast. Correct. Our food bowls live much further inland and, and government it relies on that. We, we make masses of money on the export that comes from those food bowls and from further and further west. And again, government takes very little responsibility for any of that sort of stuff. And I, So I think government needs to stop passing the bullets not about is it state or is it about federal it's about saying there is an issue and and they have responsibility to get alongside each other and work with us to sort it out that they have to be able to understand that when you simply abdicate responsibility uh, when you sit in Canberra or if you sit in Brisbane you're not actually seeing the impact of what that looks like mm. and so when people leave towns and you have towns that are full of empty shops mm. the depression of a township is really significant mm. so I think understanding what some of the impact of that remote and rural stuff is is really important but I think the other thing Patrick is it, it for me it's interesting you know I think government likes to take the, the cheapest and easiest way out. And look, I, I understand that you want to make the best of the tax dollar, so there is sure. some reason for that. But we cannot have the same model applied to deliver services in Metro as you deliver services in Toowoomba as you deliver services in Quilpie. Yep. 
They have to have different models. Um, and I don't care what level of government you come from or what colour or stripe you are, you need to understand that. I think the reality is that we live in a country that is multicultural. I really want to call out the xenophobia that we keep hearing. Mm. I think that we have uh, literally made uh, our economy on the backs of refugees and migrants. We need to do a much, much better job of supporting that. I think that we have vulnerable people who are really struggling and I don't think tipping money just into things like job actors is necessarily the solution. Yep. In fact, you know, the mess of that is going to be a really interesting thing to see play out. I think that we need to do more to ensure that we are getting early support in, not at the, you know, kind of right at the edge of the cliff. Um, and I think that in general terms, we should be asking local communities. Because in the same way that we say in our Catholic care space, people are the experts in their own lives. <laughs> local communities yeah. are the experts about what will work. Yeah. And it is mind-blowing and, you know, diabolically awful how often government simply says, put this solution in place and everyone in the town is just saying, well, we'll give it 18 months because it's going to fall over. Yeah. And it's not because they don't... It's not about the fact that they are not wanting to change. It's about the fact that they actually know what is best for their community and nobody bothered to ask them in the first place. I can see you've had a lot of time to think about that. <laughs> I think there might be a career in, in that space in the future. Anyway... <laughs> Francis Sullivan, who you know, um, headed up the Truth, Justice and Healing Council, established you know, as the church, Catholic Church's response to the, uh, the Royal Commission recently. And towards the conclusion, I remember him uh, giving a presentation and he was asked about, you know, what's the future of church, Catholic Church in this instance? And, and what, what he said, I thought, was quite, um, well, amazing in some respects. He said, look, I think the future is in the services it provides, its education, its health, its social services. So, you know, that's someone that's seen your role and headed up and saw some of the, the, the church in its worst light, unfortunately, and, and um, you know, what's, where do we come out of that in the future? So, again, someone that's got a lot of exposure and experience in, in church and church services, what do you see as the role of churches and charitable organisations in providing social services, particularly in the future? I think that, um, frankly, I think that government is understandably nervous about funding church. Um, yeah. And I think it's in part because of those legal structures we made reference to before. Yeah. They are archaic, they are not transparent, they are not accountable. Um, you know, all the things that good government would expect they should be, they are not. So I think that the, the kind of um, ongoing future survival of uh, Catholic uh, organisations is going to have to be uncoupled from the Catholic institution of church. I think that we need to have separately incorporated institutions. I think it is fantastic that you can have missions that are gospel driven uh, that, and that you have organisations that hold true and firm to that, tr that purpose but I do not think there is any benefit any longer in being coupled to an institution that has so many problems and is still struggling to address even the most basic, let alone the complex ones there. Mm, mm. Uh, over, the, over the last century, church and charitables were often the sole source of supporting people you know, in, in the margins and, and vulnerable in our communities. It wasn't until the 1970s, roughly, that you know, governments became more involved in providing that support and services. You know, as um, in this century, governments are sort of now moving away from direct services a lot more and they're looking to community organisations. So I suppose it goes on the back of what you said that, you know, what does that future look like if, we're, if, if churches get that, what you've just said, and say mm -hmm. they decouple 
those community services. How do you see that decoupled service working with governments into the future in, in the new world? Look, I think, um, you know, you want to dream big and you want to hope that you will be able to really continue to make a difference uh, and, and, you know, bring light in darkness and, and hope where people are really struggling. I think that, I think that the reality is we want to be able to uh, have a space where we know that we can deliver services in ways that are about meeting community need. Um, yeah. And I think that government wants to be able to trust that the that the money they provide will be well spent and accounted for. Um, I think that governments need to understand that the impact of introducing market competition uh, into the social services space has not been um, anywhere near as positive as that they had hoped. And I think, unfortunately, NDIS is the model that we're going to look to and we're going to say, great principle, crap rollout. (laughs) Uh, It's not very glamorous. very succinctly put. But I honestly think that, uh, you know, I passionately think people have the right to have choice. Yes. But the way that it has rolled out and continues to roll out, you you hear devastating stories every day and we don't even work in the disability sector (laughs) and we we hear that impact. So my concern is government is going to continue to want to have the kind of booper end of the world because they will see that that is the most, you know, financially um, attractive option because it's the cheapest. It's certainly not the best. People so, do not get the best service in that space. So finally, then, as a you know, a vision for this more equitable Australia, mm-hmm. do we, you know, it, it sounds like a significant role of advocacy for organisations like yours and and regional communities that you represent. Like, they need a voice, don't they? It's what I can hear. They need a voice in decision making. Absolutely. Don't impose stuff on us is what I'm sort of hearing. That's exactly right. right. And I and I think, Patrick, in the past, you know, we've been associated with bleeding hearts. Yes. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, I, I have a heart, um, but I run a business. I want to make a profit so I can reinvest in my communities. Yes. And I absolutely know that I understand the impact of government policies far better than many politicians who are based in Canberra. So I, cert- I I would like to think that in the future we will be part of that consultation. In Toowoomba we have some fantastic industries and we have some brilliant leaders yeah. and I'm really privileged that actually I do yeah. get a call when people want to know what's going on. Um, I'm really lucky that I often have an opportunity to talk to media about that space. It's not necessarily for every, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think we need to have people from the social services sector speaking into conversations uh, right across the right across the space because all of us are vested in having the best for our communities. Because in a perfect world, I would love that we didn't even have to exist. Really, in a perfect world, people would look after each other. Yeah, Kate. Um, thank you very much. Always great to chat, chat with you and uh, uh, thank you for those insights. Uh, certainly very succinct, some of them, and uh, um, I, I think you've got a career in politics in the future. But anyway, that could be another part of your career journey uh, for a 32-year-old. That, uh, that Thank you, you Patrick. Are. Thank you very much. I'm <laughs> delighted that you've remembered that last part. I've had a wonderful time. Thank you. Thanks, Kate, and thanks to our podcast partner, Catholic Care Social Services Toowoomba, for making this interview possible. Also, thanks to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communications consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our 11th podcast. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd, and this is Seen and Heard.